Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The New Economy. I'm Stephanie Flanders, head of Bloomberg Economics. If you didn't know about the New Economy Forum already, probably should. On November 6, 2018, Bloomberg will be gathering leaders from all corners of the world to Singapore to talk about the challenges we face in a shifting global economy and how we're going to solve them. It's the brainchild of Mike Bloomberg, so naturally, it's ambitious. It's possible the 400-odd participants won't solve all of the world's problems in two days, but he's expecting them to at least make a start. There are a bunch of critical issues on the agenda, including global economic management, climate change, technology and global governance. In these six New Economy podcasts, I want to start a conversation about some of those, taking advantage of Bloomberg's army of top-class journalists and analysts, especially the economists and economic reporters I have working for me at Bloomberg Economics. First, I wanted to talk about trade. Now, for most of my career in journalism and economics, international trade policy has not been where the action was. You would put it under the category of important, but slow-moving and often mind-numbingly dull. Not anymore. Now, everybody wants to talk about trade, and not just because Donald Trump has rediscovered the tariff. With US protectionism on one side and China's aggressive state industrial policies on the other, Neither of the world's two largest economies wants to play by the rules. The result could be a very different global trading system and a very different global economy. I'm going to get into some of that later with Bloomberg's chief economist, Tom Orlick. But first, Bloomberg's China economy reporter, Kevin Hamlin, has been on a curious literary quest from his office in Beijing. Okay, let's go in and see what we find. This is a big section on economics. That was me looking for a mysterious Chinese tome called the Green Book. I'm checking out a lot of Green Books here, but none of them so far are the one that I want. This book, with its green cover, plays a controversial but little-known role in the trade war between China and the US. ...that searches books in stock. She's now checking that out. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce says it's a guiding hand behind China's plan to dominate 10 strategic industries of the future, like new energy vehicles and robotics. The Chinese government, though, denies the book has any official impact on policy. When I started investigating the Green Book, I discovered that many trade experts hadn't heard of it. I asked the Chinese government to talk to me about it, but I had a brick wall of silence. So I started trying to find a hard copy. And the book is not in stock. They do not have the Green Book here. Anyway, let's come back to my search for the Green Book a little later. We'll understand its role better if we look first at how China and the US came to be at loggerheads over trade. 
Remember the good old days when Donald Trump and China's President Xi Jinping met in Florida back in April last year? Here's what Trump had to say then. The relationship developed by President Xi and myself, I think, is outstanding. We look forward to being together many times in the future. And I believe lots of very potentially bad problems will be going away. So, How quickly things change. Here's Trump talking about China this year. China has taken out hundreds of billions of dollars a year from the United States. And I explained to President Xi, we can't do that anymore. China's become very spoiled. The European Union has become very spoiled. Other countries have become very spoiled because they always got 100% of whatever they wanted from the United States. Fast forward to today, and China and the U.S. are slugging it out in a trade war. Trump has branded China a strategic competitor. And it's not just him. Tensions over China's trading behavior started to build not long after China joined the World Trade Organization back in 2001. In the U.S. and Europe, blue-collar workers were losing jobs because of low-cost imports. Then, after the global financial crisis erupted in 2008, a backlash gathered force in the U.S. Blue-collar workers were angry about free trade and the impact of Chinese competition on U.S. jobs. Both were themes that would later help Trump get to the White House. There was another key factor, too. When China joined the WTO, negotiators assumed it would slowly open its markets to foreign competition and shift to a more liberal economic model. Despite some incremental progress, that fell far short of expectations. Here's Harvard University law professor Mark Wu. People have been aware of these issues, but there was either an optimism that China itself would adapt and so the problems would diminish over time, or that some of us who have been worrying about this may have overblown the scale of the problem. After Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, China seemed to move backwards. And so Trump's focus shifted more and more to his repeated allegations that China plays unfair on trade. We asked Timothy Stratford, a former assistant U.S. trade representative, to illustrate why China is often seen as an unfair trader. Let's suppose you're an American company, you're planning to spend $5 billion to build a new plant. If you build it in China, you, you have a pretty good uh, assurance that you're going to be able to sell your product widely throughout China. And also, of course, back in the U.S., because the U.S. has an open, open market. So with your $5 billion investment, you'll have access to, you know, to the largest markets in the world. If you build the same plant in the United States, you'll have market access in the U.S., but you may not have nearly as good a market access in China uh, because China tends to protect its domestic manufacturers. So if you build it in China, you, you can get access to both markets. If you build it in the U.S., the, the access to the China market is more problematic. And if you're the U.S. government, you say, well, that is hurting us. Something has to change. There's more, of course. The U.S. says China forces technology transfers, provides massive government subsidies to industry, and steals intellectual property. The final straw is something called Made in China 2025, a plan that aims to make China a leader in 10 advanced industries now dominated by the West. Here's Stratford on the impact Made in China 2025 had on the U.S. The, the breadth and the specificity seemed to put the last nail in the coffin. It was kind of a lightning rod that, that uh, 
focused all of the I mean that really made clear what what people were concerned about that brings us back to the green book I'd heard about targets China sets for its companies to dominate some industries, and I knew these targets infuriate the US. But Made in China 2025 has very few targets. That's when a contact told me to find the Green Book. I'm looking at quite a few Green Books. Um, none of them are the one I want. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's a book on the rise and decline of nations. It took a couple of hours, but eventually I found it. It was in the second bookshop I visited, the Xidan bookstore in Beijing. Oh, that, that, that should be it. It's Made in China 2025, Major Sector Technology Breakthroughs, Green Book. We found it. It seems to be the, the 2016 edition. It's formally called the Made in China 2025 Major Technical Roadmap. Its 296 pages are full of targets. Take integrated circuits, a product crucial to making electronic devices. The Green Book sees China taking a 56% share of the global market and 80% of the domestic market by 2030. If such targets are met, they would virtually lock foreign suppliers out of China's market, and Chinese companies would make huge gains against foreign companies in global markets. The Green Book was first published in October 2015 by a body called the National Manufacturing Strategy Advisory Committee. More than 400 high-ranking industry representatives and specialists and 25 academics contributed to it. Former Vice Premier Ma Kai attended the first meeting of the committee that produces the book. The establishment of the advisory committee was designed to improve policymaking, Ma said at the time. China says the Green Book's targets are unofficial but the U.S. Chamber of Commerce believes the book exists to keep industrial targets out of official documents where they would attract more scrutiny from foreign governments. Foreign companies may already be losing business because of the targets. This is Jake Parker, Vice President for Operations at the U.S.-China Business Council in Beijing. The Chinese government may contextualize them as guiding documents, but what we're seeing is those targets are being met. We're seeing increased reports of U.S. companies being excluded from certain Chinese domestic government procurement processes or tenders because those tenders have increasing requirements for of domestic content requirement thresholds. The greatest risk for foreign companies, though, is that targets trigger another round of massive overcapacity from China. That might trigger repeating on a bigger scale what happened in the solar and wind power industries before. Numerous foreign firms in those sectors were wiped out by Chinese competitors backed by government subsidies and cheap funding from state-owned banks. China says there's nothing to worry about. It promises that Made in China 2025 policies will be applied equally to both local and foreign companies in China. But many foreign experts share the concerns of Scott Kennedy, a U.S.-China expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The chances of creating massive waste across the system are just monumental. The Chinese, though, may just not care about that waste and believe that increased market share and dominance of the industries will eventually allow them to recoup the profits. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. 
He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I've been listening to that with Bloomberg Chief Economist Tom Orlick, who's just moved to Washington for us after 11 years in Beijing. So, Tom, we, we seem to have gone from Mao's little red book uh, to the green book, you know, leaving aside Kevin's epic quest for that. You know, just as a practical matter, what probability do you put on China actually meeting these targets? I mean, governments say all the time they want to do Y and Z and dominate that industry. We don't normally expect them to actually do it. They're going to get there in some important cases. In other important cases, they're not going to get there. Um, yes, all countries in the world have a very similar set of plans. They want to be good in AI. They want to be good in biopharma. They want to be good in nanotechnology. China doesn't differ in that respect. Where China differs is that they have some unique resources that they can bring to bear on the problem. China has the second biggest and the fastest growing market in the world. All companies, US, European, Japanese, have to be in the China market if they want to have a successful global future. That gives China enormous leverage, which it can bring to bear and which it uses to engineer technology transfer from leading companies in the rest of the world to joint venture partners in China. China's state ownership is not intrinsically an advantage in terms of innovation. Indeed, it's probably a disadvantage in terms of innovation. But when you have a state-owned banking system and you have state-owned enterprises in important sectors, you've also got an important engine for catching up. You can provide the funding, you can provide the technicians, you can provide the industrial backbone for not innovating past the technology frontier, but rapidly catching up to the technology frontier. And what we've seen 20 years ago in areas like steel, more recently in areas like solar panels, is that that combination of resources can be formidably effective. When I was uh, learning economics, in what I get was the heyday of the Washington consensus, I suspect. You know, the one thing you it was drilled into is governments can't pick winners. And they used to say, you know, losers can pick governments. You know, these companies would come and ask for subsidies and usually they were a bad bet. But governments shouldn't get into the business of picking particular technologies and particular companies. And yet this is exactly what China's planning to do and has already been quite successful doing. When we look at places like South Korea and other things, I mean, these kind of directed lending programs can be successful, but they can also waste a lot of money and lead to a lot of, as uh, Kevin said, you know, you've got now a lot of industries with excess capacity and, and, and excess debt. Do we think it, there are going to be a lot, a lot of wastage out of this? Is it actually going to help their development in the long run? I, I kind of would turn it on its head a little bit, Stephanie. Um, where I think about China's wasted resources is where they are ploughing credit into old line industries and bridges to nowhere infrastructure projects. With 2025, the China 2025 plan... Um, what they're trying to do is to plow money into projects which push forward the technology frontier in China. So yes, they're going to have some hits and they're going to have some misses, but putting money into robotics, putting money into trying to develop semiconductor foundries, um, putting money into trying to develop new energy vehicles 
your chances of boosting productivity over the long run with those type of investments is going to be much higher than continuing to bankroll the debts of an old steel firm or building lavish new government offices for some municipality. Okay, so let's think about the impact on the rest of the world. I mean, you've said you started off as a classic uh, economist saying that they'd succeed in some areas and not in other areas, which is, you know, phenomenally unhelpful for the industries in those sectors, I'm sure for the companies in those sectors. But I know you have done some work for, for, for us looking into who would be the biggest losers, at least by country, if China succeeded in these uh, goals. You know, how did, what, are the, what were the results of that? I think we can we can talk about that. We can also I can also try and add a tiny bit of value for our corporate <laughs> customers uh, stung by your rebuke. Um, so uh, I think one way to think about it is how high are the technology barriers um, and how large are the potential economies of scale in sectors where there are relatively low technology barriers and there are large economies from of scale from people who can make big investments. China's going to have a huge advantage. We see that in steel for example. Low barrier to entry, big economies of scale, China invested and then they dominated. Semiconductors, very high technology barriers. China's made billions of dollars of investments in trying to catch up with Taiwan and the United States in terms of semiconductor um, fabrication, and they've not done it. Um, So I think one way of thinking about the outlook on a sector-by-sector basis is how high is your how how wide is your moat? How high is your technology barrier? And what are the economies of scale in your sector? Um, coming back to your question on a sort of country by country analysis, um, we ran the numbers. We looked at sectors covered in the twenty twenty five plan, and we looked at which countries around the world um, have the biggest presence in those sectors. So who has the most to lose? The somewhat surprising uh, conclusion is actually the U.S. doesn't have much to lose. The U.S. isn't doing much in the China 2025 sectors. Maybe aircraft would be the exception. The countries with the most to lose, um, Korea stands up, at the, is near the top of the list. Germany is near the top of the list. Um, so the sort of somewhat ironic conclusion is that um, the U.S.'s America-first trade policy uh, is actually potentially doing a big favour um, for other more vulnerable uh, European and Asian economies. But I guess the, the U.S., uh, counter to that would be well we may not be in those sectors now but we could have been trying to compete in these sectors we could have laid out our own plan i think president obama even tried to have his own plan for sectors that they should get into and china is sort of stealing that from under them i think i think that's certainly true um what i also think it goes to though is the relationship between the trade and the geopolitics right um the U.S. might not be the country that loses out if China makes big strides in new um, energy-efficient vehicles or, or robotics or the parts which go into mobile phones. Um, but the U.S. does fear the consequences of a rising China, a China that overtakes the United States as the world's biggest economy. Um, and they would fear those consequences even more if China was not only the world's biggest economy, but the biggest supplier, the monopoly supplier of all of the parts which went into the products which US companies currently uh, currently produce. You identify a lot of uh, Asian exporting economies on those lists of potential losers in robotics and, and other areas you mentioned. Some uh, Is this going to be destabilising for the region if they get this kind of dominance? Is that how, you know, the Japans and the Koreas, is that, do they feel that this is a very aggressive 
attack on their market? So far, Stephanie, I mean, the rise of China has been a net positive for the Asia region in terms of the economy. China has provided the uh, assembly point for the screens, semiconductors, batteries that are produced in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, snapped together in the factories on the Pearl River Delta and then shipped off as smartphones to, to consumers in the, in the US and Europe. Um, what the Made in China 2025 plan um, represents is a sort of a threat to that win-win situation. Um, China is saying, you know what? We're not content just to be the place where these parts are snapped together. We want to be the place where they're designed and manufactured. And if that happens, then you see the competitive advantage of your um, Japanese, Korean and Taiwanese firms being chipped away, more of the value added being captured by China. Uh, and of course, that would be uh, a risk to, to growth in those Asian neighbours. Are they going to fight back? I mean, we're somewhat assuming that they're going to be able to move forward in these markets without a big backlash. For the moment, anyway, we've, we've been saying that. But do you think we're now at this later stage of, of Chinese development? You know, people can see China coming. They're going to be much less generous uh, in trade and maybe even using the WTO against China. Do you think that's going to happen? Um, at the risk of sounding terribly pretentious, I think there's a, a game theory problem which a little bit explains the relationship between China and other countries. It's the, the stag and the hounds problem. So you've got a bunch of hounds surrounding a stag and they can capture it, but only if they work together. If one of them gets distracted, the stag can leap out. Um, and that's a little bit like the relationship between China and all of its trade partners and all of the corporations that want to do business in China. Yes, if the US and Taiwan and Germany and Korea and Japan and all of the many corporations in these countries could cooperate and come up with a coherent plan and stick to that plan, that could be effective in ending forced technology transfer, for example. But the reality is that those countries and certainly those corporations who compete with each other can't cooperate effectively. And what China has proved supremely effective at doing over the last few decades, and I'm sure will continue to be effective at doing in the decades ahead, is providing distractions for one or the other of the hounds so that they can continue to escape, continue with their programs of technology transfer and continue catching up to the productivity frontier. So with that visual image in our minds, there's a lot of countries who would panic and certainly companies that would panic if China succeeded in some of those really amb ambitious targets. On the other hand, we know that the regime has got quite a lot vested in it. And we might worry, given this sensitive stage in its development that China's at, we might worry about the implications of them failing very obviously in this ang aggressive, ambitious plan. So how much do they have vested in it? How important is it for the stability of the regime right. for them to succeed? So, so one... one one important difference between China and the US is obviously the political system. I remember thinking back to the uh, Obama-Romney election. Um, one of the big issues in that election was an investment the government had made in some kind of sustainable technology, and that investment had failed. And the Romney camp kept hammering the point that this was an example of government overreach and the Obama administration had wasted taxpayers' money. Um, of course, Obama went on to win the election, but this was a kind of a point of contention and a point which was in Romney's favour. The Chinese government wastes billions of dollars on a daily basis, um, and the Chinese political system means that that isn't a problem. 
Um, and what that means is, of course, it's, it's not good to waste money. But when you're trying to innovate, when you're trying to learn, wasting money is, is, is part of the process. And China's ability to waste money without it mattering um, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of political stability, I think actually is a positive in terms of their capacity to innovate. Um, to come back to your other question, is it better if China succeeds or is it better if China fails? I'm afraid I'm going to have to fall back on another economist answer. I think either extreme is undesirable, mm -hmm. right? Uh, an extreme where China has succeeded in all of its plans and all high value added industry is located in China and the entire manufacturing base in the rest of the world is hollowed out is clearly undesirable. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, a scenario of total failure by China, where China is stuck at the low end of the value chain, continues to waste money on steel and cement and bridges to nowhere. Um, clearly, that's undesirable as well. I think ultimately where we're going to come out is that China's um, innate and systemic advantages give them the edge in certain sectors. There are sectors where the technology barrier isn't high and where economies of scale are large and in other areas where the technology barrier remains high and the economies of scale are relatively small we're going to see the US, Germany, Japan, Taiwan, Korea continuing to have an edge. I love your uh, comment about the sort of time horizons and the ability to waste money. I think that's the one thing if, if, if the average politician in Europe or America could have one thing uh, from the Chinese, it would be that same ability to plan over the long term and not always be thinking about the next election. The, the pesky uh, irritations of democracy, which they have to put up with, at least uh, for the time being. Uh, Tom Orlick, thank you very much. And uh, we will continue to see whether any of those targets in that Green Book are met. Do you have the Green Book by any chance? I'm going to call Kevin and ask him to photocopy it for me. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for listening to The New Economy. Today's episode was reported by Kevin Hamlin with editor Jeff Black and produced by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Tom Orlick. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.